and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. It's been well documented that Hollywood and Silicon Valley have always had a close relationship. Even though these industry centers exist within the same state, the underlying state of mind has always been somewhat different. There's clear perspective to be had with melding the best of both worlds, and this week's guest has been at the forefront of that intersection. Matt Mazio spent his formative years at CAA, joined Chris Saka as managing partner of Lowercase Capital, and now is the general partner at Kotu Management. Matt's one of the sharpest consumer investors in the world, and we touched on a number of topics in this conversation, including the blending of the Hollywood and Silicon Valley mindset, his partnership and time at Lowercase with Chris, how he's thinking about a post-COVID world, and the future of education and rehiring. Welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Ramin. It's great to be here. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, Matt, really excited to have you on the show today and, and jam on a bunch of topics on your CAA days, you know, how you're investing in COVID and, and some of the behavioral shifts and undercurrents you know, that you're most excited about going forward. But before we jump into those topics, tell us a little bit more about your background. You know, I uh, graduated school 2005, uh, just to put yourself in time. Uh, you know, this was right when tech was just becoming a, a, you know, a career path that you would jump into. But most of my, uh, you know, grads same year went to banking or consulting or sort of like the safer careers in like uh, medicine and law. And I, I went sort of a totally opposite way of most of my uh, most of the grads my year. I, uh, I went to CAA. I went back home to L.A. and I found myself, you know, weeks later, uh, sort of right at the bottom of CAA, uh, an assistant to an assistant. At, uh, you know, in the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, it was sort of one of those things where I think I was like the lowest paid uh, grad uh, at Harvard that year. But, you know, you make like $20,000 a year and, uh, and you have to sort of beg to get into the mailroom training program. But it ultimately became sort of the best decision I ever made. And uh, I spent the first eight years of my career at CAA um, building out a division that was focused on all things tech, venture and digital content. And so that meant like, uh, you know, everything from like signing new and original talent from the internet when it was sort of, sort of not yet a thing, when YouTube was just getting built, when Twitter hadn't even yet been built, when Facebook was still mostly college campuses. I, uh, I was getting to work with clients like Michelle Fan and help launch companies like uh, Funny or Die and, uh, and basically help all the clients of the agency figure out what the path could be with these new technology partners. And then the other half was basically being sort of the connection point for all things startup and digital media and tech. So if you were Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Kickstarter or, you know, uh, Amazon, and you were starting to think about how you could partner with companies in, in entertainment, CA was eventually, uh, you know, invariably a no that you went through. And uh, I was like the point of contact. So the way that CA was organized is all the clients of the agency had different agents who were experts at different things. Like you had a TV agent and a film agent and a music agent and an endorsements agent. And I was like your startup venture digital agent for everybody. And so basically like anyone that approached Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg, Oprah, or whoever was a client of the agency, uh, invariably if it had to do with this world, they sent it to me. And so basically for eight years, I got to be the front line of defense for, for the client base and sort of identifying whatever opportunities were out there for the clients in those worlds. Um, yeah. And then, um, and then after that, I, uh, I joined, uh, you know, I thought I'd frankly never leave. The, the plan was kind of to, to die in a suit. Um, but I, uh, I decided to jump. I met a, I, I, in the process of that, I met a partner uh, who, uh, who convinced me and showed me a vision of the future that I believed in. And I left what, what I thought was like, uh, sort of the best job I'd ever have to, to join lowercase capital as a partner and then, uh, eventually managing director, uh, and 
got to do that for a, for a number of years um, and happy to dive. I imagine we'll do some diving into that. And then about two and a half years ago, when Saka hung up the spurs, uh, I had an opportunity to sort of reinvent uh, what I thought the future would look like and joined, uh, joined Co2 uh, because the founders here showed me a vision that I believed in. And so that's, uh, that's the path. Yeah, no, and we'll dive into each of those individually. I, I want to go back to kind of the, the CAA, the CAA piece. Um, and I, and I want to get your perspective um, a little bit more on the parallels between both businesses, right? Between a talent agency business and, and venture capital. Um, you know, most of the folks that are listening, you know, to this podcast are certainly, you know, native to tech outsiders of the talent and, and creative industry. I, I personally became a lot more fascinated, you know, by CIA. I think it was probably four or five years CIA ago. CIA or CAA? My partner, Andy, actually was at the CIA, <laughs> but this is, a, I think, a different process. CAA, CAA. Uh, I, got, I got more um, intrigued by CAA uh, when about four or five years ago, Andreessen Horowitz actually started talking a lot more publicly about how CAA was actually the inspiration to structure their firm. So talk a little bit more yeah. about the parallels you know, between both businesses and both sides, and then we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the depth of your specific role as the crossover. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of parallels here. I think you know at the core, the the parallel that I took out first and foremost from both worlds having done it is uh, is that both are service jobs at the end of the day. That first and foremost, you are you are in service to talent. Uh, in in the entertainment world, that can be writing talent or acting talent or musical talent or gaming talent or sports talent. In this world, it's you know founding talent and it's talent that is building something you know uh, in code or a new service. And it's uh, you know, but both and it, both are creative aspects. Both are creative talent. But as the agent or the VC, you are effectively in a uh, you know in a service orientation and. Uh, and that's how you have to differentiate yourself as well. And I think, you know, Ovitz took this to an extreme, you know, and the Andreessen team took it to an extreme by building out like a host of services. They took the parallel so, sort of to that extreme of like all the services that that talent could need. You know, in entertainment, it was film, television, music, endorsements, speaking, uh, you know, gaming, um, digital media. You know, and in, in tech, those services might be, you know, uh, bespoke for the founder or the talent need here. But, uh, but first and foremost, that's the, the biggest parallel. Um, and then, you know, people try to draw parallels between like, you know, the producer and the, you know, and try to take the analogy too far. But I think if you just focus on that one, that's the, that's the biggest takeaway that I had. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think, I mean, the crossover is, I, I agree, right? Service oriented and, and value add. And you were alluding to it a little bit before, but I want to I dive into kind of your specific role and, and the role that you were playing, right? Obviously a parallel, yeah. to, you know, how you met Chris and, and went on to co et etc. But I, I think setting the backdrop is, is interesting because at, at that point in time, you know, when you were kind of building out this practice or, or focusing on it for the firm, um, Twitter wasn't a thing. Right. Facebook was still on college campuses. So talk a little bit more about, you know, where your head was, where it was going and and really what informed the thesis for you to spend your time in that space. Yeah, I think I think my my favorite thing in the world is just my passion is the thing I'm drawn to is like, you know, thinking about like what what will happen and what seems like once you see a a a new world state once you see like the the old saying the future is not evenly distributed uh the future is here just not evenly distributed like that that is sort of like the thing that i enjoy spending the most time thinking about and looking at and so when i started seeing and you know i was 
I was on Harvard's campus when Facebook launched. You kind of got the feeling and the sense of how that product moved you and why it was exciting. And I was just there and got to see it ahead of most people. And it sort of gave me this bug where I wanted that feeling all the time. And then I found two careers in venture and the role that I sort of created for myself at CA where I got to do that as part of my job. And so I started just diving into all of these things where it's kind of like ahead of people. I love that position when people are like, hey, what's coming next? And just by virtue of the fact that you were spending all day, every day looking at these products and experiencing and talking to people who were smarter than you about what that future was. And if you were enthusiastic and curious, you kind of got to see it all. And then the you know, you might not have a perfect vision of what's coming, but you talk to enough people and you get enough data points that you can kind of triangulate on like the smartest people in the world are, are working on these things and using these technologies. And like you hear it enough times that it just becomes almost like crystal clear. And it, that's kind of the, the whole goal for both. So, the, you know, the other similarity is like you're just this information source. You learn by osmosis, CAA, you know, and you know, most roles at Venture and, and especially at Code 2, it's about, you know, access to as much information and breadth of data as possible. And CA is just an information router as much as any organization. It's like the Library of Congress, but for entertainment. You see every deal. You see every, you cover every buyer. And so by virtue of that, you can start to see patterns emerge of like, what are people buying? What do people care about? What's the next thing coming? Where, where, are, the, where are the customers spending their time? And that gives you a glimpse into the future. And then you can advise talent on that. And you can pass that information and data on in ways that are actionable. And so that's, you know, the other side of this job was just like, I fell in love with that feeling and that curiosity it didn't feel like work to me. It felt like, you know, what I would spend my time with, you know, irrespective of like if I was getting paid for. And then I found two careers where it was actually like, the core of the job is to spend most of that time speaking to people who are going to show you a vision of the world and synthesizing the learnings and then working with the ones that you feel most compelled for, most compelled by. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I think about like my, you know, my shift to lowercase and my shift to co two after that as sort of like following that same thread. Like I met, you know, I'd known Chris for years and he just showed me a vision of the world uh, in what venture would look like that seemed obvious after hearing it. You couldn't get it out of your head. And so you just had to jump. And then when you meet Philippe and Thomas, you know, and the founders of Co2 and the partnership here, and they show you a vision of what venture will be, you just like, that seems like, the, that seems obvious to me. I have to be a part of it. And you jump and you get to be a part of building that too. And so, I don't know, that's, uh, that's the other parallel between these two careers is like, just, you know, osmotic absorption of as much information as possible and then how you synthesize from multiple industries at the same time to create a, a slightly clearer vision of what, uh, you know, of what's already happening and what will happen at larger scale. No, there's no, there's no question about it. And I, and I want to dive into actually your, your transition from, um, you know, from CAA to, to lowercase, right? A lot of different, you know, a lot of interesting kind of nuances of going from kind of a broad-based massive kind of talent agency to a to a one-man solo VC shop, right? Essentially, <laughs> yeah. it was very different. Yeah, um, very different. Um, so let's kick off kind of let's kick off that kind of line of conversation with sure. set the stage for you know you mentioned you you know you knew Chris for years, right? Story's been well documented about you know your interaction kind of at that that pivotal jam session, right, at South by Southwest. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of meeting Chris and that transition. Yeah. Yeah, so happy to. So, uh, I mean, the, the jam session was, you know, I was the guy covering all things venture. So I, I was the one going to YC demo days in the early days. I was the one, you know, my colleagues were going to Sundance and Toronto Film Festival and Cannes, and I was, you know, going to South by Interactive when it was still mostly like a handful of nerds talking about, you know, uh, Java. And that was like just the things that I enjoyed doing. And so, like, 
you know, we would go to these events. We, you know, I would bring a handful of talent that was excited about it. And, you know, we would all hang out. And then late at night, we would get together. And again, it was like small enough to where nobody had their guard up yet, where we were all just feeling it out. And like no one had done something so impressive that they were like too cool. And so like in that jam session, you had people who would eventually build huge, awesome companies, right? You had Travis and Garrett, you know, uh, and the Uber guys. You had early Twitter guys in the room. You had, you know, uh, you know, Melody McCloskey, founder of Style Seat. You had, you know, Ryan Sarver. You had like a whole bunch of people, you know, you had like Dave Morin, Matt Van Horn, you know, Kevin Collar, early Facebook teams. But nobody was like too cool yet. Nobody had like, you know, any Gary Vaynerchuk is in the room. And at the time he's a, you know, a wine expert, but like, you know, and now he's, you know, uh, one of the best investors in, you know, social media, you know, advisors on the planet. And you just had like all these people in a room and we just sat up all night talking about what the future would be like and what, what we thought was going to happen. And we still do it. We, there's still like a text group in that room, you know, Ashton's in that room. And it's, you know, it becomes people who go on to do really cool things, but we all centered around the same ideas, which is like just talking about like what tech we liked, what products we liked, and and jamming on it. And uh, in that room was a guy who was just louder than anybody, um, and you know the other Italian kid uh, from Buffalo. And we just we would went at it all night long. We just argued all night long. That just became the basis of our friendship, and frankly, exactly how we interacted for most of our partnerships. So like just debating and openly you know riffing on like what we thought the world was going to look like, or what reacting to a product or a founder or an idea. And so a lot of sort of like it set the basis for like healthy debate for us for a long time. I, I love that. I'm, I'm such a firm believer in creating your own role and kind of continuing to follow along with the people, you know, whether and, and I feel like now, especially, you know, back 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 then, I think it was a little bit harder as well. I think now with so many open mediums, right, whether it's Twitter, you know, whatever it is, connecting with people, proving out your thesis on the world, you know, doing side projects, so on and so forth. It's, yeah. it's easier than ever. Chris, you know, said he was never looking for another partner, right? But obviously asked you to be his partner. You guys were on a journey for a while. What was the, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, right? He had kind of shown you a vision that you felt super compelled by. Talk, talk a little bit more about that and the thought process to jump from CAA and join him. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the vision, like, it, you know, it's obvious now. It was not obvious then. So the, the obvious, you know, the obvious now that wasn't obvious then was that, you know, the, that there was... A, a generation of new investors who would be built to help founders from the earliest days and see through sort of like the credentialism and all the, the gatekeeping that used to exist and just bet on great builders and found anything like it was, you know, first round and Saka and soft tech and, you know, um, YC and a bunch of organizations that were just built on this idea that you didn't need to go to an Ivy League school necessarily. You didn't need to like have connections to somebody on Sand Hill Road. You could just build great product cheaper than ever thanks to the tools of like cloud and a laptop and like, uh, you know, the, some modular, you know, uh, you know, SaaS that you could actually like stand up an idea really quickly. And this whole premise was getting started that you could invest you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than millions of dollars on to set up new companies and you didn't have to build infrastructure anymore. And all these things are obvious now, but it wasn't obvious then. And that there were going to be these massive macro shifts, you know, as tailwinds to build massive companies. And I just believed in it. I'd never been a finance guy, but the idea that like you could spot that kind of talent that like, and, and strip away, you know, the, um, some of the, the pomp that like would limit you otherwise to getting access to that capital, that seemed like a vision of the world that I wanted to be a part of. And then, you know, it, the, the part that I, you know, on, in terms of like the shift there, you know, I, 
I think that maybe it's interesting to talk about the one, the part that people don't know, which is like, you know, um, yes, we've been friends for a long time. Yes. Like we both shared that vision of the world. Yes. We had jammed, but like, you know, I believe that those career opportunities open up, you know, in moments of like, uh, extra effort. And I'll be more specific. Like when somebody goes above and beyond, that's when like, you know, the biggest shifts in careers can happen. And I, you know, and you've got to jump on that opportunity. So it just so happened, like we had known each other for years from like, from that, from some of the stuff that we had like done in Gov for, you know, a whole bunch of other interactions. But one day I was flying up to San Francisco to the office that we'd set up for CAA in SOMA. And I just randomly happened to be sitting next to Saka and uh, another friend, uh, Dick Hillenbrand, who were on a flight to Southwest, uh, who were on a Southwest flight, you know, mm. up to do something, I think at the time with like Obama. And, um, and we, were, we all just like randomly ended up on the plane together. And we started talking about, you know, you know, digital media at the time. That was like an area that I could, you know, I could talk about for hours. And, uh, and they were like, hey, so, you know, I think they were looking at a couple of investment opportunities in that world. And they wanted my take on what I saw in the market. And, you know, it could have been really easy to just give them a hot take in the moment. And, you know, we started riffing on it. And I was like, you know, uh, let me get back to you with, with, my, with my thoughts in a, more, in a more condensed way. And I basically spent like the next week laying out like a really comprehensive deck <laughs> on like how I thought about that world. And like I had met everybody in that space. I knew the teams at all of the digital media companies, at all the MCNs. I knew what the landscape looked like. And I could just speak cogently to it in a way that other people couldn't. And I went above and beyond, you know, it would have been just an ask I could have just sent to like a quick email, but I ended up putting together a whole bunch of research on it. And I delivered that, you know, with my, th my thinking on like, here are the companies that I believe are going to be impacted. Here's where the winners are going to be. And here's how I would think about the, the, uh, the structure of this market for the next 10 years. And I, I think when somebody goes above and beyond for something like that without asking for anything in return, it wasn't for anything other than like, because I could and I knew it would help. I think those things leave an impression and, you know, and it created an opportunity like, hey, you know, we should just do this together. And he had, you know, Chris had made recommendations for me to go work at other firms and like, you know, at startups that were in his portfolio. And I, I probably should have. But, you know, this was the this was the moment where he was like, hey, you should just join me and do this with me. And uh, I think it started. I think the foundation was laid prior, but like that might have been the catalyst to uh, to it, like an effort that went above and beyond. And if I think about the people that like do that in my life, like, you know, even now, people that I work with that do that in the things that I'm excited about, like it leaves an impression. And so, yeah, there, there's no it's question. Created opportunity. There's no question about it. I think a lot of these opportunities just get created by providing, and it, it goes back to the core thesis you you were talking about earlier, right? Is kind of this opportunity for, um, you know, a, a legion or a set of investors to help founders. I think providing that value upfront and doing it kind of with no intent of asking or requesting uh, creates those types of opportunities down the line. Um, yeah, when somebody delivers above and beyond it, like it's hard to jar people awake. We're all in our own zones. And yeah. so when somebody goes above and beyond and jars you awake and like shows you effort and like, you know, that is the kind of thing that I think like really resonates nowadays and breaks through the breaks through the noise and creates opportunities for those people willing to do it. Chris is obviously, you know, in, in retrospect, it might not have been obvious then, right? But obviously now one of, you know, one of the best investors of our time has a very big personality, right? As you mentioned as well, Matt, what did you, you know, when you kind of, when you take a step back, what, what did you learn from him? And what do you think he most appreciated about working with you? Um, I think, you know, I think I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about how to think about 
motivations and what drives people and how mm -hmm. to ask questions that, you know, uh, don't necessarily like force people into a confirmation or force you to confirmation, like just being objective about understanding like what people care about. And so like today, if you're a venture capitalist, you talk about, you know, uh, you know, market risks and competitive landscape. And like, that's how you ask those questions. And there were different ways of asking those questions that I think get to the same answer, but like, don't seem as mechanical. Um, so I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot about, you know, um, uh, thinking about product and storytelling around product and the importance of storytelling. It was something that always resonated with me because I worked with some of the better storytellers uh, in media and entertainment. And then to see how that like storytelling ability, you know, was equally important and narrative, how much, how important narrative mattered in tech. That's the thing that like, you know, and that like sometimes, you know, sitting with a founder, you know, you, how they tell their story, it's really hard sometimes to pull yourself out of the thing that you're focusing on and put it in broader context. And I think, you know, one of the advantages that you have when you're in a position like venture or talent agent or, or anything where you're seeing such a broad array is you know how to put, lay, lay something contextually and make it broadly translatable. And like, that was my job at CAA and in venture now is like, you know, I had to explain to talent what Twitter was in the early days. Like I had to explain, like, this is what it, the product is. This is why it's important. And I stood up there in front of all the agents the day that I found out about Twitter and explained it in our staff meeting. And like that translation from one world to the next is like exceptionally important in tech more than ever it's as, as tech impacts every single industry. And like, that skill set is something that I like. I definitely sharpened both written and verbal with him. Um, and then we were very complimentary. Like I'm a natural extrovert. Like I love meeting people. Like it fits my personality to like go and synthesize and run. And it's like not exhausting for me. And so we, there were some similarities that we had. But I think the things that like you know he has said in the past that he uh, appreciated about you is like. I'm the kind of person that can like do a breakfast, a lunch, a, a drinks and a dinner and find it invigorating. And like, I enjoy the process of like, you know, and my, I don't know, my, like the, the skills that I've honed over the years, like synthesizing that information, knowing the right people to introduce and to, to create sort of like valuable connections and like understanding how to hone in on things that are exceptionally valuable, like for that person. And I built it from like him and I built it from the top, top guys at CAA and gals at CAA, like, you know, I'll give you one anecdote, which is, you know, there was a, the, the, one of the, the head of CAA, uh, Richard Lovett, um, was probably the best I'd ever seen at this, at relationship building. And he would do it in a way that, like, made it really unique. So in every meeting, he found a way to, I, to extract whatever was, like, the most valuable thing to the person that he was meeting with. And it could have been a talent, it could have been, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, an executive, it could have just been somebody that he was interacting with the first time. And, you know, he'd find out what was important to that person. And then he would, if it was in his power to do so, and quickly, he would deliver something that meant that, uh, that was of value to that person. And so that could have been in the room, it could have been a script idea, or it could have been, you know, one day, this is strange, but one day he like saw that I was wearing like, you know, crappy shoes. I was still like maybe a, a junior agent or like uh, an assistant. I couldn't afford nice shoes. And like, you know, a day later he had like, he had bought me nice shoes. And he, he just had this like ridiculous attention to detail at extracting like what might be something that this person would appreciate and like, and then delivering it to them. And it ended up creating this like incredible way of like establishing a relationship and value between, between people. And uh, I don't know, I, I, 
I took that skill and made it my own in a different way. And, um, and I think that gets appreciated. I think the underlying current of what you're, what you're pointing out, Matt, things like storytelling, right? Motivations, talent spotting, et cetera, are so, they're so critical and they're so different from kind of the classic investor response, right? Of looking at kind of the superficial layer of, um, I shouldn't say superficial layer, but the important layers of things like competitive landscape, macroeconomic drivers, so on and so forth, the business model, et cetera. But the underlying piece at the end of the day is you're funding people, right? And you're backing people. And I, yeah. I think that, that perspective and thought process around how does behavior shift or how does how do motivations form, how does psychology shift actually becomes really interesting in, in kind of the era we're living in now. So I, I want to transition to um, what's going on in the world right now, right? COVID. Obviously, yep. that's one event, right? Not something any business, you know, modeled out at the outset of the year. Um, let, let's start a little broader, right? A lot of folks have, you know, had strong theses or perspectives that, you know, the world will permanently change post-COVID. Some have thought, you know, things will go back to pre-COVID normal. Obviously, the spectrum is fraught with nuance, but at a high, at kind of a 50,000-foot level, you know, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I, I sort of had a, a thought that I put out the other day, which was like, you know, that COVID is kind of like this fast-forward button on the world. Um, hmm. And if there was a change that was like exponential or geometric, uh, you know, and it wasn't yet obvious, it's become jarringly obvious because each month of COVID lockdown is effects, effectively like a year on those trends. And yep. what you're seeing is it's basically like snapping a couple of years off the x-axis. And so people see these enormous jumps that would have like looked like a traditional exponential or geometric chart, you know, if you had seen it, but now just look like a break in time. And it's like, that's a crazy jump. You go from 10 million to 300 million. You go from like, you know, no one's doing video conference. Everyone's video conference. You go from like, you know, you know, 15% people doing e-commerce to 25% people doing it. And you're like, those jumps are insane. But like, you know, frankly, it's just pulled the world forward in some of those ways. The, the ones that I can't wrap my head around yet and I still struggle with, and I think it depends more on like your perspective on human nature are the things that were like flat behaviors that yeah. now have been like paused or stopped and understanding whether those things snap back to reality or whether those things like, you know, uh, are gone forever. And it's a paradigm shift. Is it a handshake or is it like, uh, you know, a concert in like, you know, do you believe those things come back to life and that there's just fundamental human needs? Or do you think they're just like artifacts and we're just like adapting to a new reality and we have like back to normal is like, a, is like a, you know, a, a fairy tale that we tell ourselves and the, the world is forever changed. And the, the honest answer is like, it has more to do with your belief on like human nature. And it's like, you know, the underlying motivations for why we were doing those things in the first place are like, what's the half-life of fear and trauma and how long will it take us to forget moments like this? And like those things I think are like the interesting things to ponder, but like for the things that were exponential or geomet geometric, like, and frankly, the stuff that like I, I've been super excited about for years, the unfortunate thing is they all are obvious now. It's like, are you going to be, you know, needing software to be more collaborative and layer data and automation into your process? Uh, yeah, a hundred percent, obviously. Like, are you going to do more things in video com communication and drop the cost of commutes? Uh, yeah, a hundred percent, obviously, but like it wasn't necessarily obvious to people. And frankly, some shifts that might've taken a generation to, to, to convert, like you might've just have to wait for like the last generation who would never adopt a new paradigm to convert, converted in months. Like we got like a whole generational shift in a lockdown. And that's the, that's the kind of thing that like, you know, I, I don't think people have fully grasped yet. 
Yeah, it's. I was reading an article actually this morning um, about um, about a company which was basically saying, and it was in the e-commerce space, and you know, so they were they were being asked, you know, how is how has growth been? How have you basically been able to sustain, you know, all the demand? They said we passed our 2020 targets, you know, in a in a, in a <laughs> week. We passed our 21 2021 targets two weeks later, and we just passed our 22 2022 targets three days later. We stopped counting now. Right. I I think it's completely right is you just see this massive acceleration. I think it becomes interesting and more nuanced when you you kind of put it like on a two by two. Right. Which is you can kind of think of growth uh, due to the crisis on the vertical axis and sustainability of change on the horizontal. Right. And are these it gets to the point you were making of are these behaviors permanent shifts? Right. Are they temporary? Are they snapbacks? Um, You had an interesting tweet up yesterday and and I participated in it. So I'll, I'll give my perspective. But you said. You know, you're building a mall in 2021. What three brands do you kick it off with? I'll, I'll share oh, my yeah. perspective, but what was what was the end kind of answer you found? You know, most yeah. Convincing? You know, the the things. Uh, uh, one is a public company, so I won't I won't reference it. I think, but the uh, the uh, the, pre- the my responses were like, you got to think about like food, fun, shopping, and uh, and fitness as like the core things that you get out of a you know a retail experience in the future. And I think like the 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 other uh, sort of slash on it was like the future of curation. And so my, my mm. picks were like gold belly or the infatuation at, for like your food court. Like people want the best item from anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world and they want the highest rated X. And so a curated food court of like the best single items like felt to me like, you know, again, most people responded with like the future of malls, like they're all dead. Like, why would you build a mall in 2021? So for anybody who said that, uh, you're not invited to my birthday party. But for anybody else who actually <laughs> answered it, like that idea of curation was like something that stuck with me. And then for like fitness, it felt like, you know, su- a, a similar sort of framework of like, you know, uh, things that were already digital communities that you could bring into a retail experience. Um, and like, if you're already extending like, your subscription online into a physical retail experience or huge curated, mar- huge you know, platforms of, for e-commerce and extending them into curated experiences in person. Felt like where I, you know, where I wanted the world to go. And then honorable mention to things like 2-Bit Circus just because I'm an escape room nerd and who doesn't love that? Have there been any trends that you've actually found yourself kind of on this lens of, you know, before kind of a, a Black Swan type event, it's, you know, this is going to be the world, the, the change is going to be inevitable and you've pulled back. And I'll, I'll give you an example without naming companies, right? One, one perspective or one thought I had was, um, let's, look, let's look at ride sharing, for example, yeah. right? Cars are utilized 4% of the time. We have enough parking lots to make up the state of Connecticut. No brainer that that's the direction of the world we're going in. And we have a couple massive public companies in that space. I have found myself behaviorally though, pausing. And even though being you know, very long on that thesis and being on that thesis for, you know, for however long, pausing and saying, man, I'm so glad I have an individual car right now because the yeah. last thing I want to do is actually go into rideshare. So I use that as an example to say, have there been trends or pieces where you've said, you know, it's inevitable that that's the direction the world is going in where you've kind of actually paused or reverse perspective on giving COVID? Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I want to answer, I, I don't have something top of mind. Uh, it's funny Maybe it's maybe it's the uh, the ego in me that I'm focused more on the things where it's like confirmation bias and the things that like this is accelerated by this moment. But I'll, I'll give you a thoughtful answer before the end of this discussion. Let me let okay. me think about it for a bit. Yeah, perfect. One one of the themes I'm actually most excited about, and and um, I, I think is going to you know continue on kind of the line of logic we we're talking about, which is 
things are fundamentally changing and it's only going to get accelerated is, is how people think about uh, workforce, right? And, you know, unemployment's at a record high right now, over 30 million claims filled in the last six weeks and counting. Yeah, it's devastating. There, and there's no way, you know, any of the traditional mechanisms, right, whether it's job boards, LinkedIn postings, whatever it might be, is going to be able to, you know, push us at the scale we need, you know, to get out of this crisis. Um, let's yep. use that as, as kind of one, one sector we focus on, again, at a, at a broad industry level. Talk about how you think about that space and, and workforce in general, given what we're going through right now. Yeah, I mean, industrial revolution, you had a decade or decades and, you know, a full generation to adapt to the new changing market. And so, you know, it's not like everybody magically ended up in a factory that was once on a farm. It took like many, many years of of shift. And we've been making this shift in the last 20 years to a knowledge economy. And, uh, you know, it's been jarring and there's no question it's been tumultuous. But this is like the, the rapid acceleration of that. And so as we talked about earlier, it's like pulling the future forward, like each month, each month gave us another year of shift. And so these, this year will feel almost like an entire decade of shift in certain categories. And that's like that disruption is really freaking hard to adjust to and like radically change like industries, you know, uh, and, and skill sets and adapt those skill sets to this future is like really hard. But I think that's what we need to do. And we need to build institutions that can like adapt to like what does the market need and want and train people for those skills and open up training to make it as, as easily, easily accessible and affordable as possible to match new skills and new training or adapt existing skills to the new order. And it's like, that is, that is the, the, the gap. Like, you know, most people, when they go to college, they sit there and they, they get asked on the first day, what are you most excited about? What are you interested in? It is not like, here's a graph of all the data, of all the jobs that are open and will be open predictably in the next five, 10 years. And the career trajectories of the people that, you know, go into those paths. Here's the skills required in school to go and build those skills. And we iterate around those on, a, on an annual basis. Like my instinct is they are still teaching a lot of the courses that I took in school today. And most schools are not adjusting and don't even have a framework for thinking about like round tripping. Was this person? person effective in the workforce for the role that they were that they that we trained them for and like you know I, I was a liberal arts kid yeah you know, I think I built a, a bunch of really great skills and I built a, a bunch of great a great network and the credential of school clearly helped my world but like that's not what's going to fix this next generation of like how do we adjust to where the world is heading and the faster we build that feedback loop into and like uh, and, uh, and open up opportunity for people to like retrain or train or adapt their skills, the better we will be and the less painful and the less jarring this, this change will be. But trying to think about it like going back to the way it was is, uh, is uh, you know, fan- fantasy. It's, uh, it's wishful thinking at best. And I you think know, like dangerous thinking, candidly. And I think it's going to be impossible, right? Because I think what's going what's to happen is let's say schools don't open up in the fall, right? parents are going to start questioning or students themselves are going to start questioning. Am I really taking out, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of debt to sit on a zoom call? 200 K for four years of zoom does not sound like a great, like a uh, value exchange. Right. And it's going to be more obvious to everybody like that. The tools weren't adapted fast enough. You know, you had hundreds of year old institutions who are now just like for the first time, just, just understanding what zoom is and either they're going to adapt really fast or people are going to make a fast value change to somebody else that is coming up. And so all of these skills and all these tools, all these tools and all these platforms that are going to be built to teach robustly online and scale that process feel like big beneficiaries when you have this much of a dislocation in value, right? And not to mention like the underlying tailwinds of like one, whatever, 
trillion trillion plus of like student debt. Exactly. That just doesn't feel like a, a sustainable moment for us. And uh, you know, what happens in those markets? A few people really succeed and scale and adapt, and you have like a, you know a mid tail that gets gutted, and uh, and then you know the whole industry reshapes. That, so. that's, exactly, that's exactly right, right? So when when I think about it, I think about it from the basis of if you really unbundle education, what, what are you fundamentally unbundling? You're unbundling credentialing, you're unbundling some sort of socializing or social experience, and then you're unbundling training, right? I, I don't think any of us would dispute, and you know, I'm a Harvard guy as well, like you. I don't think the value of that education was, was sitting actually in the classroom, right? The value was the people you got to know, certainly, right? And then and credentialing, right? I mean, those were really the two kind of it big depends. It, no, I, like, I don't know if you were a CS person but like you know there's a there are hard skills that you're building there that are exceptional yeah, skills I was a liberal that you arts really, guy like you. yeah so like <laughs> i don't know like i learned a little bit about like psych and law and like i, I enjoyed those category and economics and behavioral act and like i love that category but like there are a lot of people building harder skills there i don't want to just you know th- the response is not like degradating the experience of like any opportunity for higher ed to teach you but it's like understanding the full like value and, and then for the people who aren't getting that full value, who aren't like building the skill set and the network and the time spent and the maturity and the mentorship and the opportunity and the credential, like that are going to unbundle it, $50,000 is a lot of, is a it's big a ticket. It's yeah. a lot of money. And it's like, it can be a, it can be a life changing life. Al- it is a life altering amount of cash for most people. I didn't grow up like I, I was lucky enough to have like, you know, be on financial, financial need, uh, scholarships. So like, my parents hit hard times when I was in high school. I got a ride there. I got a ride to college and it like changed the trajectory of my life. Like I, I know how valuable those places can be. And I was the lucky, like it could have just totally flipped my story. I would have had to take different kinds of jobs. I could never have afforded 20 K out of my first job. I slept on my mom's couch, but thank God I didn't have student loans to pay back. And like most people don't have that. And if I were not able to get that, I probably would have had to make drastically different decisions that would have impacted my career path. I am super grateful and fortunate about what happened, but most people don't have that moment happen to them. And like, that's not okay. Like, There's got to be solutions for everybody in that way. And like, we're going to build them fast. I believe that because there's opportunity to build them fast because people want those things. They want to be trained for the jobs that are available. They want to be trained in more flexible ways. Some just want to be trained digitally at the flexibility and like have different modalities of education that are more flexible. Like that makes sense. Like, and, and people are building those now. And I'm super excited about finding people that are building them, you know, for this next generation. And, and so let's let's talk about that a little bit more, um, because I, I think that's I, I, I abide by actually that general thesis, which is, you know, I think coming out of this crisis, um, you know, I think Mark Andreessen said it a while ago, which which I think is right, is, you're, you know, the, the average middle class student in, in America is still going to be looking right at the Ivy League or kind of the top end type schools, because there is a massive value in credentialing, right, a network. Right. And even some of the pieces you were alluding to in, in terms of the way of, of thinking. Right. So that that's going to be a longer tail. You're going to have a whole middle tail, which is going to be questionable, right? Because the question starts to become, do you pay $50,000 a year for that private school, right? Where you're not necessarily getting the value of the credentialing, so on and so forth. And so the apples to apples is really about, you know, actual learning. So then what's the best, you know, mechanism for learning? So we're seeing a lot of vertical labor marketplaces pop up in training, right? And, and yep. they're... You know, there's so many components and there's different ways to think about it. You, you have, you know, marketplaces for a specific type of labor 
a specific skill, a specific demographic. Some are extending, you know, full stack, right? How are you thinking about that space in general? Um, you know, I think, I think those are great platforms. I'm super excited about that, that vision. Uh, the, the dynamics that I care about most are, you know, uh, First and foremost, the product, like are people actually getting, you know, a skill set or adapting to a skill set to to a high value market that is tied by tailwinds that are expanding drastically in the future. And then secondarily is can they align incentives, you know, uh, between uh, job market and students and school to to make sure that like the the pro, the the platform iterates fast enough and can continue to adjust to the changing dynamics in the market so to continue to to feed on it and last and ideally can it build like alumni style network effects and eventually build credentialing itself like as a symbol of quality for the people that go through the program and like if you can a- achieve those things like that's a really powerful mix of you know of, uh, of dynamics. And I think you'll build really valuable companies in that space because, you know, again, people are willing to pay for this clearly. And, uh, and there's demand in the market for great talent that is trained with these skills. And it's like, and the traditional ecosystem, I don't believe is going to adapt fast enough, mostly because they don't have any feedback loop built into the product. It's like they create a product, they ship it to the world. They never do anything other than just like rest on a 300 year, you know, uh, reputation of like, these are good people. And it's like, you know, yeah, they, some some are, some aren't. They do a quality control at the beginning, but it's like doing a quality control on the parts of the beginning and never doing quality control on like were these effective in the field. And it's like I don't know. That seems like a, a how you would do it. Um, and so I'm excited about companies that are sort of building towards that end. Do, do you think that this scales to where we have kind of like a 2.0 system that you know essentially mirrors how we have college today, and not, and not you know the aspects of which will be disrupted, et cetera, But I mean more so from the perspective of a 2.0 system where we have, you know, hundreds of kind of these marketplaces, schools, et cetera. Or do you think we, we do have a fundamental shift where, you know, we have de facto schools, it's a it's significantly less number, you know, than the number of colleges and they become kind of the, the, the point of source of training for a particular skill set for hundreds of thousands of people, you know, as opposed to, right. uh, I went to Duke for undergrad where we had 6,000 undergrad, for example. Right. How do you, how do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually like, that is, has historically been the pattern as you think about like technology invading new markets as you get like monopoly duopoly or like, you know, winner take most markets. And then, uh, and then the mid tail of like, you know, less technically savvy, you know, institutions uh, and competitors and incumbents, you know, die. And like, that's, that seems like what is like what has historically happened. And, you know, either technology radically expands the marketplace or it shrinks the marketplace in terms of like total, you know, in, in terms of total value, but it also like enables a few players to dominate that specific marketplace. And so, you know, my instinct is that like more people will take, you know, will have access to higher education, but it may end up costing less, significantly less, hopefully orders of magnitude less and be a higher quality experience. And like, you know, in certain categories, it'll also be a durable competitive advantage. And, uh, and that means that you'll be able to build like a, a meaningful, like and valuable business on the back end of it. Yeah, it'll be, it'll certainly be an interesting, interesting kind of trend and in, in space to track. You know, Matt, I want to, I want to round out our conversation by um, talking a little bit more actually tactically on, on how you're thinking about 
you know, helping or supporting your founders and entrepreneurs, you know, operate through COVID. Talk, talk a little bit more, you know, about, you know, in the landscape of times and, you know, you've been through the financial crisis, right? Dot-com boom was obviously predated um, to your, your involvement in the space. Yeah. But talk a little bit about how the experience has been from the investor side, you know, what you're seeing in the portfolio, again, at, at a high level. Um, yeah, maybe how you're helping folks. Maybe I use it as like, I think it's important to talk about like how we, how we think a little bit at, at KOTU because it's, I think yeah. it speaks to like, you know, how we've, how we've helped people, you know, think about COVID is also how we think about the platform at, at KOTU. And so like, you know, when, when, when I was thinking about what to do after lowercase, you know, and I started having conversations, the thing that stuck with me most and ultimately made me feel like this was the place where I wanted to spend the, the rest of my career was, you know, sitting down with Thomas and Philippe and, uh, and Daniel, the whole partnership at, at KOTU and understanding, you know, where they saw the world would go, was going. And like, you know, when I saw lowercase, the opportunity was like, you know, these lean shops earlier in the space, like moving fast, having conviction ahead of other people, like going where the founders were, not requiring like an MBA, but just getting your hands on early product and like beating people who were like slower than us to the market. And then that market got really efficient. It went from like 10 funds doing it to 75 funds doing it to 150 funds doing it to like, I think there's like, I don't know, a thousand micro funds targeting that same stage, right? And there are great people, great partnerships, great, like, you know, a lot of people that I love working with. It's just more efficient than it's ever been at that stage. But, you know, as I thought about what, what that world would look like for the next 20 years, you know, you have to say, I, I asked myself a series of questions and it's like, first and foremost, you have to believe that like, you're going to build a platform uh, or be at a platform where you know you can help people and you can you know help founders build world world-class companies and they have to look them in the eye and say i this platform is helpful in that process and uh and to do that you have to ask yourself a series of questions um like do you believe the world is going to be more global from a technology perspective or less global i believe more global do you believe that like great technology is going to impact companies in the early stage, in the growth stage, and in the public markets, and that companies will be impacted by tectonic techn like technology shifts uh, at each one of those stages? Unquestionably, yes. Um, do you believe that uh, that technology is going to impact more and more sectors, and so you need to have insight into as many sectors as possible to understand where the cutting edge shifts are taking place, and then ability and have an ability to then apply them to other sectors? Unquestionably, yes. Do you believe that software and data and scale were going to be impactful in venture investing in an industry that historically resisted it and be impactful in not just helping you understand markets and companies, but also impactful in how you help service those founders? And the answer for me was unequivocally yes. And so if you believe those things, then you understand that you have to build a platform that is also like a product in itself and that you need to think about it from the perspective of like, you know, how do you build a product platform that it synthesizes data from all over the world, from every stage of technology, from every, uh, from every industry, or as many industries as possible, so you have better ground truth on where the shifts were gonna be happening. And that's, that's the vision, you know, the vision is like, how do you how do you create that platform? And so we are a product org. We, you know we have you know more data scientists and software engineers than we have investment staff at Code Two, and we use software and technology you know in ways that help us get a better sense of like market shifts and dynamics. And it's like it's not just instinct. It is 
data and interpretation of data. It is, you know, when we take a look at a, at a company or a, an industry, we benchmark it against ground truth, not about some like, you know, hey, I had this experience, you know, not just, hey, I had this experience operating here, you know, or that, you know, from my time here that becomes outdated and has a half-life to it, but is like real time augmented by what's happening in the world and then like creating a pane of glass for founders to understand that. And so for, for COVID, that's what we do. We go out and we synthesize, you know, data from as many sources as we can and we, and we build an interpretation on it and then we feed the data and the interpretation back to our founders so they can make a, their own determination on what to do with their business. And that's like very different than just like in the last crisis from 2008 or in the crisis from 2001, here's what happened and here's what you should do. It is, here's what's happening. Here's how we think about it. Let's think about how you should adjust given the dynamics that we're seeing on the ground. And that is like, of you know, the reason why most people have to just rely on anecdote is because they can't, they, they don't have the skill or the offering to provide insight into ground truth. And that is, that is where I believe the world is heading, is like data and insight augmented with your experience and great like, and we've built a team that has incredible experiences. Like my partner Yandas founded four enterprise companies. Dan Rose was head of, you know, uh, head of uh, uh, partnerships and, you know, at, at Facebook and then ran BD at Amazon. Karen Marooney was founder of the Outcast Agency and, uh, you know, uh, then head of comms at Facebook. Ariel, you know, product at a bunch of startups, Ariel Zuckerberg, Andy Chen, best recruiter I'd ever met, technical recruiter at Kleiner and Riviera and highly technical. Um, you know, Andrew Lumley, one of the best analysts I've ever worked with, you know, and, you know, is now helping us think about markets and models. And like, honestly, when I look across the entirety of our, of our firm, it's like a basketball team of people who have like unique backgrounds and experiences, you know, and, and bring different things to the table that can help inform founders with their experience and expertise in addition to data and software that we can give them. You know, Michael Gilroy and FinTech and our thinking there, it's all of these things, you know, are, are compounding uh, to make it a, a really powerful platform. And so that's how I think about where this world is going. When I, when I heard that vision, you know, you either believe those things to be true or you, you know, or you don't. And I, I think it will be obvious that this is what venture looks like in the future. And I was willing to, to bet the rest of my career to, to be a part of it. Uh, and, you know, I've bet on two people, like I fell into CAA because it was the career that I thought I'd enjoy the most and I was most curious about. And LA was an industry town. But I, I made two career decisions, you know, uh, with betting on founder like Chris uh, and betting on the founders at KOTU uh, to help to build towards that vision. And so... I'm, you know, it's uh, that's where you I, you got to believe the world is heading. I think that's the perfect way to round out the conversation, Matt. I um I I I mentioned this to you before we started recording. I'm I'm so glad you made the time. You know, I've I've been a huge fan from afar for for quite a bit of time. So thanks so much for sharing the insights, the perspectives, and you know, really excited to continue to watch you know your career progress at at Koto as well. Right on, man. Thank you for the time. Really love the show and uh, appreciate the line of questioning. And uh, hope you stay safe and uh, you know. Keep it up, man. You're, you're, doing, uh, you're doing cool stuff with this thing, so I'm enjoying it.